The theater of the mind is eternal. The little man who used to come into the marketplace and sit there and tell the story, that's still the same thing. It's the little boy climbing up on daddy's lap and saying, Daddy, tell me a story. Essentially, I'm still doing that, Woody. But I have to give it the contemporary uh, electronic gimmickry, shall I call it, that makes it immediate now. And we're doing that. Well, I got fired by High Brown. You did? Yeah. Hmm. I got rehired on other things, but I was doing what they called a hitchhike, which took place at midnight, and it had to do with, you know, the network and local stations dropping off, and it, you know, but it had to be done at 12 o'clock on Saturday night, and it was for green shampoo. And it was really kind of a tedious job, because as I say, I was living in Connecticut, and sometimes if I didn't have anything to do on a Saturday, I'd come in just to do that. Or if we had been in town and Frank had been working, because he usually worked Saturday nights, then we'd go to the Hurley's Bar and Grill, which was called The Beach, and we'd spend a lot of time there, and I would have to get upstairs to do the shampoo commercial. Well, I had been doing it for over a year, and I just went in one night and I knew the copy by heart, practically, and he threw the cue, and I did the pitch beforehand, and I wound up by saying, so be sure and try, Droom Champagne. And it, was, it wasn't one of those things where the audience would say, did I hear that right? I said it loud and clear. And I, after, the, after you know, he pushed the talk back, and he said, sweetheart, I think you've been doing this too long. I'll get somebody else. And he did. But I did. I said it brilliantly. <laughs> By the time the CBS Radio Mystery Theater debuted in 1974, the men and women associated with the show had been involved with each other for nearly 40 years. Mary Jane Higby grew up in Los Angeles and remembered Hollywood before it was a radio hub. I was brought up in Hollywood because my father was an actor and he went out there for D.W. Griffith in films. And I went through public uh, school in Hollywood. And, <laughs> yes, that's a long time ago. Yeah. And... When I, well, I was just out of high school and playing in the theater out there in the stock company, and someone saw me and asked me if I wanted to do a radio show, and I sure did, because it was the Depression. You see, radio was, as we knew it then, that type of radio, was the entertainment form of the stay-at-home days of the Depression That's and the right. gas ration days of the Second World War. Hollywood was not the center for radio in the early 30s when you were working there. No, it certainly wasn't because there was no... Uh, uh, the uh, telephone wires were not set up in a way that made it easy to broadcast from west to east what they called the round robin, which I never understood or knew anything about till I started writing the book. And then I went to an engineer at NBC and said, look, why did it cost Eddie Cantor $1,200 more to broadcast from Hollywood than it did from New York? Because I found this out during research. And he said, well, it was the round robin, dear. And then he explained to me that that is the skein of telephone wires which form the network. Now, I had been speaking over those networks for, like, 30 years then, and I didn't know it. <laughs> I think I had the idea that everything I said went right straight up to the roof and out and into the homes across the nation. I'd never really thought of it. But, of course, I knew the telephone company had something to do with it, but I didn't realize the, uh, the extent that it, uh, the important part it played. And 
It was in 1937 that they learned to reverse the channels so that they could broadcast directly from the coast. And then there was a great rush of shows from New York to Hollywood. Unfortunately, it was the year I selected to go from Hollywood <laughs> to New York, but that has been the pattern of my whole life experience. <laughs> she was once called Queen of the Soaps. It was the first broadcast I did of When a Girl Marries, and I was extremely nervous because I wanted that job desperately. It was the first contract I ever had, and it meant an enormous amount to me because it meant a, re a security I knew about. I had been secure in the past five years, but I never knew it. Because every week you were thinking, now will I be called again next week? But I always was. But now I would have a contract with my name on it and somebody else's name on it, and I would be permanently engaged. So I was shaking all over. And Ken McGregor had made a strong fight to put me on the show against someone in the advertising agency who just happened not to like me or my work. He didn't know me personally. And I had finally achieved this, so I was terribly nervous, and I had a suit jacket on with a large belt buckle. And I sat down in a folding chair and kept my nose buried in that script and worked every second. I was keyed up to the nth degree. Then when I tried to get up, I found that I was tied to the chair, this <laughs> belt buckle. I couldn't figure out what it was. My icy fingers wouldn't disentangle me. And I saw the panicky look on the announcer's face because he'd ended his narration. And uh, the sound man rushed over to me and he realized he couldn't get me out of this position so he just picked up this chair and carried the chair over <laughs> the microphone nice. and held it what did they view <laughs> well, <laughs> and somebody else i guess the announcer came around it was frank gallop then frank came around and they worked together and got the buckle out <laughs> and finally took the chair away and i played that whole scene with someone holding a chair up against my seat <laughs> But uh, fortunately, you didn't, uh, or no one saw the humor in it at that particular moment, so you were it able wasn't to maintain funny to your me, composure, right? It was a terrifying thing. It was just dreadful. It was the longest broadcast <laughs> of my whole life. Mary Jane, you uh, were certainly considered the queen of the soap opera when you were in the radio broadcasting medium, weren't you? Well, I think there are several girls that would dispute that. I don't want to find poison in my tea in the morning. No, I would think that Ann Elsner as Stella Dallas was a strong contender for the title, and Julie Stevens as Helen Trent came in very strong. I will send uh, also our gal Sunday, Vivian Smolin. But I will say that When a Girl Marries did hold the highest rating for five consecutive years. It was during the war years. We went on at 5 o'clock in the afternoon on NBC, and it was a very popular time and a very popular show during that period. It was lasted 18 years. I believe, but yes, until about 1959. That's right. Mm -hmm. And I guess you were on all but one network. You were with NBC, ABC, and CBS with that particular show. With that show. particular show. I yeah. played on all the networks in other shows, you I'm see, sure because we all did. did six or seven a day. Joan Banks, who later married Frank Lovejoy, remembered the New York hangouts. But you see, those days, we didn't have the kind of arrangement we have now. There was the show and the repeat. So that if you did a daytime show and you were on at 10 o'clock in the morning, then you had to repeat for the West Coast three hours later. So Kaufman's Drugstore was very big for coffee, and Colby's was great for us gin rummy players in between shows. Oh. The sad end of that was that if you did a show at night that went from 10 to 11, let's say, then you had to stay, no matter where you lived, and, and we were living in Connecticut, which was quite a long commute at that point, and we had to stay until one o'clock and get off the air at two o'clock to do the show for the West Coast. So the, the, the hours 
you know, were kind of, of weird when you were doing the nighttime stuff. But during the day, work, as you all know, no matter what any of us does, work begets work. And those of us that were in at the beginning of commercial radio as it finally, you know, evolved, we all were learning our business and we all got pretty good at it and the more experience we got, the more in demand we were. So I don't know you could call that cliquish, but the, uh, I would say pretty much the same people worked same over and over again. It was very hard, for instance, for a Broadway actor to come over and compete with the skilled radio people because the technique was different and they didn't quite catch on to it. There she spent time with men and women, like the oft-heavy Larry Haynes. Well, I tell you, it's a funny thing. In each medium, they, they look for different things. Uh, physically, uh, no one ever thought of me as a heavy on stage. I do play a heavy uh, in a visual medium, namely motion pictures and the film that's about to come out, which I'll tell you about later. But it had been uh, difficult for me to impress upon people that uh, I played heavies in radio, and they looked at me and said, no, come on, now, you, you're much too cherubic. And, uh, <laughs> so I... I uh, made a transition from playing heavies to uh, doing comedy, which I always loved doing anyway, and I still do, and I played some of it in radio. And uh, now I'm known as a, a light comedian in, in theater, anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, It, it no, was well, easy to work with, with a voice. You, you, you knew this vocal quality, and so you said, well, let's have Larry well, Haynes. Just, give me know. a Larry Haynes type if you can't get Larry well, Haynes. Well, uh, yeah, that was always, you know, <laughs> give me a Frank Lovejoy or give me someone mm -hmm. else. But there was a period where they never thought of me for anything but heavies, even in radio, until the latter part of my career in radio. And I was, I made the transition to uh, romantic leads, and uh, nobody believed I could do it until I proved <laughs> that I could. Did you change your vocal uh, quality when you did heavies? Uh, suppose you were doing one now. Would you, how would you, would you talk somewhat differently than you did? Well, you, you, you just uh, gruff them up a little bit, and uh, you make them a little more guttural and, and uh, less polished, and you, and you got a you got a heavy. Yeah. Want to play romantic? You can talk like that. <laughs> Soften up a little bit. <laughs> These men and women were usually overbooked. Oh, I tell you, it really wasn't a young person's business because if you can picture, NBC was in the RCA building, which is at 50th Street between 5th and 6th Avenues. And at that time, CBS was at 485 Madison, which was at 52nd Street and Madison Avenue. So if you were lucky enough to do a show and finish a show at NBC and you had a rehearsal for something at CBS, you really had to have your track shoes right. on. And if you had a conflict, in other words, if they started without you, which they sometimes did, then you had to really fly. What so, about holding the elevator? Oh, yeah, yes. You'd, you'd, you'd ha sometimes have to have the elevators hold so like that help. the instant we were, you know, finished with whatever we did, they would take us downstairs and we wouldn't have to stop, you know, for the regular stops. It was, it was, <laughs> you as I say, you had to be young. Joan Banks went to the West Coast in 1948. Well, most of the people that came to California pre, you know, television activity were usually actors who had gotten an important screen role and were here for many months and got to like the climate. That They didn't come out here to leave New York because New York wasn't productive. It was, but they, you know, came out here and fell in love with it. The great egress of so many people was later on when New York started to really falter in terms of production. And then, whether they wanted to or not, a lot of people came out yeah. because there was more work out here. All right, now both of you, 
you came out here when the late 40s, was it? We came out in 48. 48. Mm -hmm. And you worked a lot of radio out of Hollywood, too. Well, yes. And I, I did, you know, things that I had heard in New York that I thought were just absolutely wonderful, like Lux Radio Theater. I mean, to be out here and be able to be on Lux Radio Theater was just the biggest thing that ever happened to it. But television was beginning to make inroads. I did work on... Um, Playhouse 90, and I did work on, and they, these were live, as you probably remember, and I did work on uh, Robert Montgomery Presents. The transition was beginning, and, and I was lucky enough to be working in both mediums. I used to do one Perry Mason a year, <laughs> that, and that was another. Gail Patrick knew I loved to do heavy, so she'd always make me the murderer. But eventually, the television shows were no longer being done by DuPont. They were being done by the networks, and it finally got to be more television than radio. It was about that time that TV came into the picture. E.G. Marshall was part of it from the start. I was a pioneer in television. where I was on the first dramatic show that was done on the network, and it was an NBC network, is Our Town. Fred Coe was the director, he was a pioneer in television. Raymond Massey, Dora Morandi. At that time, it was an open end because we couldn't time the shows as well. If you'd go in between the time segment, for instance, we would go off the air at 10.10, well, to fill up that five minutes, there'd be a standby pianist or someone like that there just to fill in the, the remaining five minutes. That went on for quite a while because uh, we didn't know how many sets there were. Well, we knew how many sets there were, but we didn't know how many listeners there were because nobody cared that much about television. <laughs> they were listening to their radios. That's right. And then after a while... It this got was, to what, 1946, 47, somewhere around in there? Around in there, yeah. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it wasn't long before radio began to decline, as Joe Julian remembered. In your opinion, when did radio begin to decline as television began to ascend. You have much of a chance to go into television, as many of your peers did at that time. I did the first dramatic show that CBS ever did. <laughs> you were a real pioneer in every sense of the word. Yeah, it was a 12-minute thing. There was only one stationary camera. You couldn't move it to follow the actors, you know. It was like, almost like a stage production. Yeah. I think it was the late 40s. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I remember there were only about 200 experimental television sets in the city at that time. They were programming these things experimentally, you know. And I remember the director took us over to his house afterwards, and there was a fight on television. It was a championship fight of some kind. I forget who was fighting. But the only way you could tell the uh, difference between the two boxers was one had white shorts and the other had dark shorts. The images were so unclear. Yeah. This had to go back probably to the late 30s, I would think. That would seem to me late 40s would... No, it, came back, it, it was right after I came back from England, uh -huh. which was in 1942. Mm-hmm. Oh, I said late 40s. Yeah. I was yeah. wrong. Yes, you're right about that. Well, at any rate, you did make it successfully over into television. You're uh, very much a part of the television scene today. And what part do you play on Somerset, the uh, daytime NBC soap? I play Vic Kirby, kind of a mysterious, interesting handyman figure who could be up to no good or not. <laughs> but nearly 20 years later, thanks to Hyman Brown, CBS was back in the radio drama business in 1974. You've been associated for a very long time with radio drama. Don't you think its day is over? Don't you want oh, pictures? Hardly, hardly. The pictures are right in your head, Woody. I make better pictures with your mind and your imagination than any camera can make with the actuality. What's important is that the words themselves take on 
a meaning which is not encumbered by faces or by backgrounds. The words paint the picture. And those words you hear. You listen to those words and create your own pictures. Well, I'll be. Where did he go? I don't know. He just vanished. Disappeared into thin air. <laughs>